0: But on the mainstream, I don't see that combustion engines gonna survive at all. Uh, So, and and also the performance, as you said, and the efficiency increase. Imagine if you get double the power at half the cost in a battery cell, then nobody needs combustion engines for smaller, medium-sized cars.
1: This is week one of the blogs and podcast, and today we'll be interviewing the former CEO of Pininfarina, and and Michael Preschke. Uh, I'm joined alongside Andrew from the Current Review and
2: Matt from Living EVs.
0: Hi guys.
2: So we'd like to start off with a few questions. So, like, what was your time at Pininfarina like? Like, how, how was like daily culture of, of Pininfarina, and, and like, what was the main sort of goal when you were there
0: well i think you have to slice it in different phases right we had a i would call it the stealth stealth mode phase that was very much till february march 2018 when they really launched the venture because before we were doing a lot of research business plans worked a lot behind the scenes grouped a a core team of five six seven people like a core navy seals uh, squadron and you know that was yeah you did basically everything and and the big bang was actually launching the brand automobile pinion ferina on the back of the formula e grand prix in rome uh, in april 2018 so up to that time it was very 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 much stealth mode and we didn't really communicate we didn't even have yet a legal entity so actually we were launching a project but already with a big name and especially the last four weeks before we launched the whole thing, we basically did everything and we worked kind of 24 times seven because we launched the, the brand together with GQ. We had a really big event in Rome at a beautiful palace on the back of a Formula E Grand Prix. We also presented the idea at the evening, uh, at the morning of a press conference of a Formula E Grand Prix in Rome, because as we said Italy is our home country, it's Automobili Pininfarina. So we have to launch it on the back of our home Grand Prix. And we had barely a team of five, six, seven people. We didn't have much of an event agency or press PR company. Everything was like, we did it ourselves really. And then from, from April 18, probably the first six months were super hectic. We needed to recruit a lot of people. We needed to find offices, um, you know, find the legal entity, open the bank account, you know all the basics finding lawyers tax consultants that was really hyperactive mode because already after april the next big thing was that we went to pebble beach and in pebble beach already the first time we showed a design model uh, so we needed to go to us we needed to find a cool house where we want to do do the private viewing um activate dealers we started activating dealers globally and i specifically focus also on the us started reaching out to the media. I think I had my first interview with Alex Guberman from E4 Electric in April or May 2018. So basically, you did nearly everything. And then probably after Pebble Beach, we got a very good reconfirmation that we were on a good wicket. People liked the car. We locked in 30, 40 reservations. People wanted the car, which, you know... There hasn't been really any other precedent case except us and rematz at that time to announce a 2 million plus EV hypercar. Lotus was not heard of at that time um, and nobody else was there. So basically, basically it was rematz and us to say we're going to launch there. So Pebble Beach 18 was a re- very good reconfirmation. And then from that onwards, you know, the little snowball became like a real avalanche. We created really proper teams. We set up our Italian office. We set up a real design team. So culture was still, I wouldn't call it hectic, but very ambitious, very intense. A lot of things at the same time, very short decision-making processes, very pragmatic. That was probably for the first 12 months really by motion. we have been 20, 30 people. We did two offsites. We got people all together. Uh, We hired people from any companies. I hired people from AMG, from Ferrari, from Maserati, from Tesla. So we really built a, a very good team, and when we went for our bigger offsite back in December 2018, we've been already 45, 50 people, in, and it felt really good, very, very good spirits. So, and then of course you become a more, more like a company. So 2019 was earmarked by becoming a company. We launched the full fledged car at Geneva Motor Show in 2019. And then you build like pillars, property apartments, you become more of a company. You set targets, uh, (laughs) your shareholders become more ambitious, how you're going to deal with the money. And we've been much more in the media. I mean, the good thing is when we launched the Batista in Geneva, we were the number one sports car brand of all launches across the world from a media coverage. The only guys who were close to us or just a slightly notch ahead of us was the Bugatti with a 16-cylinder, uh, most expensive car in the world announcement. And that traveled a little bit further than the Batista. But other than that, the Batista even beat the SF90 Ferrari announcement and many wow. others. So that was really, really cool. And we had a lot of um, bloggers also coming for, for Geneva. We got some really, really cool coverages on on some crazy channels and they really loved the car because it was something really different. And then it became more of a normal car. I would say the first 12 to 18 months, mom's been really crazy. I mean, a uh, very unique experience, which I was very gifted to be able to be part of and, and shape it. Um, and then, you know, you would develop more into a proper, I wouldn't say normal car company, but an EV startup company at the beginning. was like more like a mission. We were building a plane while, going on the runway.
1: Yeah, no, it's a a stunning car, the Batista. Um, I just, it was interesting you said there about uh, setting it up as like a legal entity and all that. So what is the exact connection between Pininfarina, the styling house, and Pininfarina, the car company? Like, do you share much resources together or?
0: Yeah, it's it's two completely separate companies. We have partially the same shareholder, but we're like sister-cousin companies. So Mm. none of the two have a mix with the other one from a management point of view, from a shareholding point of view. But of course Automobile Pininfarina used a lot of resources from Pininfarina. At the beginning, still a lot of the design was done by Pininfarina before I set up my my own design team, which was still still recruited to a large extent from Pininfarina people. If I didn't work for Pininfarina, I would work for other Italian design houses like Giorgiaro, like Sagato, like Ital Design. Mm -hmm because we wanted to preserve really a very strong <laughs> Italian design DNA. That was super, super important. Um, and then on the engineering side, we really had people from everywhere, from Faraday, from Tesla, from Maserati, from Ferrari, from BMW, from Porsche. Um, but the design, we had a very intense collaboration. Yeah? So it mm-hmm. is still one Pininfarina from a customer design perception point of view. But of course, the design house puts the badge on the side of the car. My automobile Pininfarina has the badge in the front. So it's the very first car, really, which was carrying the Pininfarina name as an OEM car brand and not just as designed by. That was a big step.
1: Yeah, definitely. I can imagine. Um, also, so uh, I know... It's very hard to nail down in the media because you plan to build one hundred and fifty Batistas in total, but um, like they said, they're nearly sold out. So are they still available? Of the are all the build slots gone at the moment, or is there some uh, still available?
0: So I'm I'm not completely in the company anymore, but no, i know, yeah, yeah. Stuff. So the first what, as far as I know, the first year of a production is of course sold out, and then for the second, third year, as far as I know, there's still production slots available. It's also different by market, because the sequence of launch and production will be different by region. So Europe will start first, then you will have North America, then you will have the rest of the world. So <laughs> depending by the region, also different slots are taken, different slots are still available. Perfect. And
1: so is that 150 just for the first year, like for all the regions combined, or is it for... No, the that's total a total
0: production, production of total production the entire then. Batista.
1: And will that be roughly talking, I think, three years, is it? is the plan roughly three uh, years yeah, around yeah. fifth year okay you have to
0: calculate around about four to five cars a month hmm. Yeah, well, so you're yeah. talking around about 32 to 34 months of production I think that says a
1: lot about the amount of work that's going into each car when you're only making yeah. five or six a month definitely yeah
0: it's a uh, it's a very heavy manual physical intense piece of art you have to put together hmm. And um,
1: of course, it shares much in common with the Rimac C2. Um, So how much of it is actually from the C2, Uh, like uh, obviously the chassis and such, but like how much of it is original designed in-house by Pininfarina? And then like what kind of parts are supplied directly from Rimac?
0: So I mean, one of the core signature parts which comes from Rimac is, of course, the battery pack. So Mm. the T-shaped carbon monocoque battery pack um, that comes originates from Rimac and the electrical motors, uh, the sus- suspension system had been ad- adjusted to give it a little bit of a different feeling because the Batista is, is more like a luxury Hyper GT, uh, uh, while the Riemann's is tend to, to be a little bit more of a track tool. Um, mm. But on the weight they don't differentiate so much. But a- anything you touch and feel and you really see is pretty much Pininfarina. So the interior, the exterior, the entire design, the body, um, and everything which a customer can touch and feel is very much an Pininfarina uh, design and also made in Italy. It's a little bit similar, like you take the Audi R8 and the Lamborghini uh, Huracan. They share mm-hmm. also certain components, but when you touch and feel and drive them, they they feel very different. One is an Italian. Beast, and the other one is a refined German engineering, and so the Batista is more the Italian beast, and the Rimac is then the wild Croatian track machine. Perfect.
2: So that, yeah, that's pretty so, cool. I have a quick question, like, so for the production line as Pininfarina, this is the first car Pininfarina automobile or Automobili Pininfarina have created. Do you take like a lot of um, like manufacturing ideas from Ferrari? like the with how you produce, produce like the low volume and super high quality cars
0: <coughs> i would say less from ferrari because even ferrari doesn't do their one-offs in-house like the limited number and one-off cars a lot of them are still produced at Pininfarina in italy yeah? so the j50 in america all these kind of cars actually they they take the body and they take everything they take it to Pininfarina and Pininfarina farina does, does the coach building so um, all the very small, very handicraft manufacturing actually is still very much a competence residing within Pininfarina as a competence. Um, and so that's also good because we can pass on, or Pininfarina can pass on that knowledge and does a contractual manufacturing even of a Batista. So the Batista is produced at Farina with people from Pininfarina. So all the competences, the capabilities, uh, the experiences from Pininfarina are directly uh, used for automobile Pininfarina. That's the benefit of being so close and being sister companies.
3: So, with because uh, on the topic of electric vehicles, uh, Karma from uh, California, they have a uh, they have the Karma GT, which has been designed by Pininfarina. Would you mind explaining the process of how Pininfarina is? contracted i'm assuming to design a vehicle for a, a specific manufacturer
0: i mean pininfarina has been doing that for 90 years now so this year was the 90th anniversary of pininfarina so ever since inception um uh, Battista Pininfarina was in the business of designing cars for others um and it's it's a pretty normal process normal in sense of you know there are car manufacturers out there And they want to create one of the most beautiful cars in the world. And I I know the Karma GT, which was, I think, at the LA Motor Show in 2019, no, at the New York Motor Show in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, in March 2019, I saw there. So I I know from the outset, because I'm not within Pininfarina, there's a high level of secrecy of every project. So even if we assist a company, we we never knew what kind of projects will work for other manufacturers, but I know because i also know people from karma but we were looking around and they wanted something to look a little bit more italian european and then you don't have many choices right ital design is more or less owned by volkswagen group so it's not necessarily used a lot by by non-volkswagen group brands except some chinese and then you basically have Giorgiaro's small company you have sagato and you have Pininfarina. And then. It goes without saying because of the 64 designs Pininfarina has done alone just for Ferrari, including the F40, the F50, the Enzo. You know that goes a long way, and, and that's why many manufacturers end up pitching and, and letting Pininfarina give a quote or concept, normally on a sketch level, uh, that gives you like the broad idea of how could it look like. And this is also where the Batista started, and then. Um, they move it from there and say, okay, you know, we like that concept design. Uh, we want you to do a show car. Normally, Pininfarina gets a lot of show car assignments and the Karma GT was one of them. But they did show cars for VinFast. They did show cars for, for many uh, Chinese brands. We worked a lot, of course, for Ferrari, for Maserati, but at some time also work a lot for Mini. So basically it is probably the number one design house in the world if you want something Italian. And that's where the Karma GT also ended up to be designed by Pininfarina for Karma. Hmm. And then they built the show car physically at uh, the facilities in Italy.
3: Wow. Yeah. It does look pretty attractive when you uh, see the pictures of it.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a very beautiful car. I saw it at the New York Motor Show and it's, it's a beautiful car. It looks stunning. And of course, it has this very unique sleek Italian design, the proportions, the dimensions, the surfaces, you can see where it comes from. Even if it wouldn't have a badge, you would very quickly say, it looks very much like a Piniferina design.
1: So when you first showed it at Geneva, actually like how functional was the car? Like, could it actually like of its performance, could it actually match it or was it purely theoretical at that stage?
0: No, the car we launched in um, Geneva was what we call a running show car. So it had its own engine, it had its own battery, it had its own electronics, but that was still far away from a real serial intent, production intent car. But when you go to Instagram to Automobili Pinifrina and you want to use that video, there's a video from March, 2019, because we launched the Batista on the back of a New York Motor Show in a different location. (laughs) And you see the car driving by itself through uh, downtown of Manhattan. So it could drive by itself, it could move by itself, but of course not anywhere close to the spec levels the car is gonna have when it's gonna be launched in spring next year.
1: Of course, yeah. And um, so you say the battery, of course, being sourced from RIMAX. So that's 120 kilowatt in size, I believe. Um, so just from the pure specs. Um, Interesting, I saw so the top speed is because um, the Rimac C2 can achieve over 250 miles an hour, theoretically whereas the Batista is limited to 217. Um, Is there any particular reason
0: behind that, uh, limiting the top speed to? Well, this information is not totally correct because the remotes in the homologated version, how you buy it and how it will be homologated and put on European roads is limited Mm -hmm. only to 330 kilometers an hour. uh, While the Batista is in its serial production at 350 kilometers an hour. So it's 20 kilometers faster than the remotes as a homologated car with a homologated street tires. Um, But the Batista can achieve more or less similar top performance levels with different set of tires. And of course, in a non-homologated version, so not what you have written on your registration papers. Uh, You would be able to unlock that if you are on a safe track. Um, But it is not allowed and homologated for this kind of speed on a public road. Okay,
1: Perfect, so you talk you. about
2: uh, how, how you're um, less involved with Pinam Farina right now. Can you explain well, what the reason is for why, for, for why you're not as connected with Pinam Farina now?
0: So uh, I, le- I left the venture by end of March for um, uh, personal reasons. And also because I'm currently um, investing in a couple of ventures myself, a couple of them are startups. And I'm also currently engaged uh, in a couple of financial transactions. So I wanted to move out a little bit out of an operative role because I've been in an operative role in the car industry for the last 25 years, more or less. And I wanted to go more into the investor's role. I mean, I've been around with startups and things like that for, for many times. And I see a lot of opportunities on the investment side. The problem is when you are a CEO and you run a company, you don't have time for that. Um, but at best, you can do a little bit of stock, stock trading, but the interesting thing is that you find targets, companies which are undervalued, either in a transformational deal that you buy a brand, which is a good brand, but might not be electric yet, and you completely transform them to electric, or you look at other opportunities outside the space of four wheels where there's a lot of opportunities in the connectivity space and the autonomous space and I had a lot of exposure to these industries and sectors over the last three years and even before. And that's why um, I don't have these um, positions right now on my profile. Um, but um, I have been recently investing in myself in three different ventures, where I'm also on the advisory board. And and I love to you know be able to play around with more things, be less busy in doing the day-to-day operations and building more a network of companies and using my network, which I gained over time, and also bridging between U.S. and Europe and China. There are lots of opportunities in China you can bring to Europe and U.S. There opportunities in Israel you think can bring to Europe. And when you are let's say in a, in a tight box in a way from financials and everything, you cannot really make full use of all these opportunities which are out there. When you are more in a financial investor's role, you have much more time to build these um, pieces of a puzzle into a holistic picture. And that's where I decided for myself that I want to go more into the investment side of the business.
1: Definitely, yeah. I think that was quite interesting what you said about transforming brands just completely to electric. I mean, you look at even the Volkswagen Group and what they've done, like the MEB platform, how they can use it for uh, such a wide array of vehicles, like and they Absolutely. can really bring well, the whole brand. Well, you look at Holly
0: davidson with a live wire bed, uh, electrifying of a brand Holly davidson and I think there a lot of brands out there which are really cool or they used to be cool but uh, for a generation like yours you guys might find it pretty normal to drive an electric car maybe you still like maybe have one combustion car but I know a lot of kids who are maybe at the age somewhere between eight and 15 which tell their parents today hey dad please don't take that noisy car I rather like you to take a Tesla or a Taycan it's so much more cool because it makes that noise like you know this pot race from yeah. Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. you know, like boom, 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 So I think the generation growing up now where Tesla is the new normal, they get very much used that electric can be super cool. The acceleration is super cool. The car is not so noisy, but it has all the IoT and connectivity opportunities which you don't normally get with combustion engine cars because it has much more uh, units to supply to. So it doesn't have the free computer space. You don't have the NVIDIA box on board which can do like crazy things. (laughs) So I realized that there's a a big generation out there, which is actually sucking up electricity as the new normal. And the combustion engines are becoming like the dinosaurs. And I think that's where I'm fully convinced that the electric movement, and probably even more on the B2B side than on the B2C side, the trucks, the buses, um, that's going to be the new normal in five to 10 years. And I think it's still a good time to be out there as an investor. And if you would have invested into a stock like NEO like six months ago, hundred thousand dollars, you would now have two million. So I think yeah. <laughs> there's there's some crazy stuff going on, and I think we're still at the start of a
3: movement. Hundred percent agree with that.
2: Yeah, and I think oh, if yeah, you drive
3: a Tesla Model yeah, S 100, yeah. that's
1: interesting what you say though. Uh,
0: yeah, but if you drive a Tesla 100 uh, in ludicrous mode. There's hardly any car which can beat that, right? So uh, mm-hmm. yeah. no matter how big that your combustion
3: sense. engine is, it's next to impossible. So on the topic of that, have you ever, because I'm honestly not sure, have you ever driven the uh, Batista around? Well, the, the Batista
0: and its final specs is just more or less getting ready at the moment. But I was driving it on a dynamic simulator. Yeah. So there's Danisi Engineering in Italy and they have a dynamic simulator, so which is not just a static one, but it moves. It's sitting on a skit. So you can really feel the acceleration it will have in real time. And I have to say, it's, it's between amazing and scary. It's like an F-16 on a, on a uh, how you call it? On a battleship, on an air, air freight carrier. And you're kind of towed at the end until that thing let, let you go. And it's like, wow. It's like a rocket, Uh, that's kind of, it's crazy, Uh, I think, uh, and I think we reach the limit anyway, it's not what cars can deliver as a performance, it's we're reaching the limit of the physics what the tires can transform to the tarmac, the tires come to their natural ability to transform performance into traction.
2: So, so I have a question.
0: Pirelli says, I think 0 to 100 from a standstill start, the maximum tires can bear somewhere around 1.7 to 1.8 seconds to six, uh, 0 to 60, 162 miles. Beyond that, you need really Formula 1 racetrack tires to go maybe uh, 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2 seconds faster.
2: So is Pirelli the tire company that Pininfarina chose? so the
0: pirelli is the tire company for the pinaferina and for the remats they both go on a pirelli p1 uh p zero sorry
2: p P0, 0s yeah, yeah they're really kind ACV of
0: p zero Trofeo to be very precise
1: i saw they uh rivian will also be using pirelli tires yes um,
0: absolutely yeah yeah and i think rivian is another um, really game changer right i think they reinvented the pickup truck but more of a luxury pickup truck sector because you have others who are going more commercial. I forgot the name of that company, which is doing the commercial Norden, pickup. It? Sorry. Norden? Yeah, exactly. I, I always forget that name because it sounds a little bit funny, but uh, <laughs> I think Rivian is going more about the lifestyle part of the market, like more of a, the, um, uh, the surfers and the skiers and the outdoors and the fun guys. Um, but the, the Rivian is going to have an amazing performance and they can do the tank turn
2: yeah. just <laughs> turning
0: around on, on basically on one uh, place by 360 degrees. And, um, I'm still a good friend with RJ and I think they did a phenomenal job. I think they're a little bit delayed from what initially they wanted to do because they've been also super busy churning out the, the Amazon delivery truck. But I think it's going to be an amazing pickup truck for the lifestyle segment.
1: Yeah, no, I'm in contact with a few of the engineers there. And, like, they, you know, there's a really good, like, environment in the company, you know, and they're really passionate and they're they're bringing in just the right amount of people. Like, they're taking people, like, just like Pininfarina did. uh, Well, Automobile Pininfarina, you know, take people from Tesla, from Land Rover, from various different brands and just bring in. There's also a
0: lot of people from McLaren. I think they took also good people from McLaren. Yeah,
1: Yeah, McLaren as well. Yeah. Um, Just actually, you said also um, about, you know, EVs, obviously, they're becoming more and more mainstream. What do you think the future holds for internal combustion engine, given, you know, I think it's 2030 in the UK is the ban, uh, 2040 where I live in Ireland, and then, you know, in California now they're saying 2035. So what will happen to these, like, will they become track cars only uh, or what? I,
0: I think, I mean, combustion engines probably have a reason to exist in the one or the other application. The question is only in which application, right? Motorbikes, we don't know, maybe motorbikes, they're still gonna survive a little bit longer. Um, Maybe even as a a range extender mode to charge batteries, possibly. But whatever you read right now from the regiment in in many countries, like you say, Europe, uh, UK, Scandinavia is even moving faster. It doesn't really look like that mainstream combustion engine is gonna be produced new. Um, much longer than 2030 to 2035 because Europe, euro 7 euro 7 homologation nearly kills a combustion engine because of the amount of filters you need to build behind the engine to get all these um, uh, values achieved whether it's nox or co2 or whatever it becomes nearly financially not viable anymore and, and then you basically screw down all the performance the engine produces by filtering around, filtering out all the emissions. So I know that from many car companies, I mean, I don't know if you watched recently the news that Daimler is outsourcing the entire index, um, um, engine production to China um, and, and moving I mean, engine production to China for a company like Daimler, who was so proud on their combustion engines. I mean, developing all kinds of breakthroughs shows what is in the future core and what is in the future like declining uh so i mean if a car manufacturers are serious they they need to look at do they want to get involved in building battery cells i mean Mm -hmm. packs is logic you have to build your packs but with battery cells Um, are you going to produce your own electrical motors Uh, are you going to produce your own inverters um but the value chain will change i mean look at gearboxes I mean how many companies today build gearboxes one day the majority of cars will not need any gearbox anymore an EV car has one gear there are some cars who will have maybe two gears for whatever reasons Um, but normally an EV car will not have gears Um, it will not have a combustion engine so there's an awful lot happening and I think at some point You cannot be half pregnant. At some point, you need to decide, am I going to be an EV company or a combustion engine company? And I think in the last 24 months, a lot of has changed. I mean, there are some few few stubborn brands out there. I call them stubborn because they neglect EV completely. Like Ferrari continues to say, we're never going to build electric cars, which I would doubt. Because at some point, they just might not be able to sell them anymore because either you don't get a number plate. All the tax is going to be so horrific that you're just gonna not gonna find buyers anymore so mm. i think the the point of no return has been crossed and when we've been in pebble beach in 2018 everybody looked at us as exotic they say ah oh, why are you doing any ev hypercar it's never gonna sell when you come back to the same place in 2019 every third person said yeah you know i heard this ev is coming." I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. So you move from a very niche, very exotic stage to already—I wouldn't say mainstream—but you become much more relevant. And I think if you go to Pebble Beach in 2022, people will say, "Well, you still have a combustion engine car launching, but yeah. why is this brand and that brand they all go electric? So have you missed it, or why are you thinking that in? Because it's also about not only buying the car and getting it registered today." Um, maybe one day you will have in London not eight or 10 pounds con- congestion charge, maybe a hundred pounds congestion charge per trip, you know, and then people will just stop using these cars. And we have, um, we made some fun scenarios. You all know Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we said there's gonna be new Jurassic parks and they go on a call, uh, gonna be called Nürburgring. And then mm-hmm. on, on a Saturday, Sunday, you have to online send an email to Greta Thunberg and say, Greta, I want to buy a CO2 certificate to still drive my old timer. And I have to pay X for the CO2 emissions I produce to drive into the Jurassic Park, which is then exclusive for certain days only for the dinosaurs of the automotive. Now, whether this is going to be 2030, 2040, or 2050, I don't know. But I think, um, yeah, combustion engine cars are going to end up as a, as a rare species. Because on the new car side, at some point, look at Norway, 50, 60% of the cars are electric. Then, of course, a car holds eight to 10 years, so the combustion population is going to decline slowly. But if we talk about 2040, probably everything will be either electric. And then the question is, will it have wheels, or will it go also uh, vertical and fly? Uh, and then we'll move into the scenarios of the Star Wars and, and whatever, the, the, the sci-fi uh, scenarios.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's spot on because also important to know, EVs will get continuously cheaper and cheaper as development continues with the battery packs and such, you know, uh, like gradually lowering and lowering the cost. I mean, you see with Tesla now, I mean, the prices keep on getting lower and, of course, they have a $25,000 model coming in a few years. Um, so, yeah. Actually, I'd be interested to know, uh, what are your thoughts?
0: Sorry, you're muted. Ben. Self-driving can you repeat you were muted for Uh, a second
1: all right yeah uh can you hear me now okay yeah yeah perfect yeah so i was just wondering um what what do you think of tesla like because obviously they're great praise from you know being pioneers in the area the self-driving tech everything but then there's the build quality and you know some would say the comfort and the ride and stuff so what's your opinion on tesla
0: well i think that uh, tesla has evolved fast i mean yeah, you could complain about the early Teslas, the quality, the build quality, and material. Um, I had a Tesla Model 3 performance here in Munich. Um, I liked the car, especially the connectivity was amazing. You know, I could have Zoom conferences on my display, all these things, super cool. What really annoyed me is when I, I had an accident, and my, my car, uh, my door went um, bad. Uh, it took them six weeks for the spare parts. So I think Tesla is mat- maturing as a company. Uh, but I think the rest of her company never runs as fast as Elan. So they always have a, a game to catch up. So he promised a lot. And at some point he always delivers. It's just that the gap in between sometimes leaves people with a little bit of a disappointment uh, um, because he sometimes tends to overpromise. Um, but I'm not saying he's not delivering. It's just, you know, he takes something he has in his head as real today. The rest of the guys have to catch up and make it real a few days or weeks, sometimes months and sometimes years later. Like we've all been waiting for the Tesla Roadster, which was promised for 18, for 19, for 20. And now probably going to see 2021 or 2022. So, but I think if you look at how long the brand exists overall, 13, 14 years and what he has achieved, then we will still all need to say, you know, we would not talk about electric cars the way we talk today if there would not have been Elon Musk. I mean, he was the game changer and, and, and all credits up to him. You know, nobody is interested who was the second guy who discovered America. It was Christopher Columbus, full stop. And yeah. whoever came after him, you know, never got the same limelight. And I think if somebody will say who invented the electric car, I mean, we say it was Elon Musk. Even if he might not have invented the electric car, where were many other efforts to put an electric car on the road but nobody made the breakthrough and so i would say yeah <clears throat> they're smaller you call it casualties on the way where things didn't happen the way we should or they took longer or glitches but overall we i think we all have to give him credit i mean he did things nobody else was daring to do and all of the large manufacturers have the balls to do what he did and i think his ex-wife was once quoted He's the guy with, uh, with the iron balls. Uh, he just does his thing, uh, and he gives a flying fuck on whatever anybody else says. He just does it, and yeah. I mean, we all be happy if we would have one Tesla. But when he had PayPal, he has SpaceX, he has Hyperloop. So I think the amount of activities he ha- he's doing and the breakthroughs, I think it's just remarkable.
2: 100%. Have you ever had a conversation with, with Elon Musk? And no, and-
0: never, never really face to face. I have in the early days when I was thinking about uh, leaving. Leaving Audi, I had uh, two or three phone calls with his team and one call even with him, but I never met him face-to-face and had a, a conversation with him. Unfortunately, I think would have been very interesting.
2: Yeah. yeah, is there any questions that you would like to ask him? Like knowing knowing what you know now of how he's, of how he's done everything with Tesla and, and basically created a main mainstream- No, no I would ask him
0: how he sees the world in 2030.
2: Yeah, that, uh, because then that, I could
0: could do a couple of good bets and and buy a couple of uh, things early enough. But uh, if you would have bought Tesla ten years ago as a stock, um, then you're gonna be you would be very well off today.
3: Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. regarding Tesla and Elon Musk, when we look at Tesla and the growth it has uh, overcame in the past, even eight years with the uh, 2012 Model S, like zero to sixty and a little over four seconds, two hundred sixty-five miles on single charge. Now you're getting over four hundred miles, zero to sixty in like almost two seconds. And then when we look at gas cars, where the performance has it steadily have gotten better, but it's just been like little improvements, not like two or three seconds. Do you feel that gas cars or internal combustion engines are reaching their peak?
0: Yeah, I mean. I think on efficiency, there's still a way they could go. I think especially with a hybrid technology, you can still optimize combustion engine cars a lot. The question is at what cost and at what kind of complexity. Because if you tear down an electric car and you tear down a combustion engine car, there's just so much more mechanical engineering you need to do to put together a combustion engine car, which basically is also cost. You know, the limiting breakthrough for EV cars is basically the cost of the battery cells. If we're able to make battery cells more efficient and we move to higher energy density, like 350, 400 kilowatts um, density rates, I think then the EV cars will have the final big breakthrough. Combustion engines are a piece of art. And I think the only thing the EV industry has not achieved yet, especially in the luxury side, is a lot of clients talk to me and compare and say, look, A combustion engine car for me is still like a very antique, beautiful, mechanical watch. An EV car is like a digital watch. And there are no digital watches people really collecting, except some very special things. It's still the emotional, the mechanical, the touch and feel, the handicraft thing. So I think on the super high end, the combustion engines still have that prestige of being something super special and super valuable. But on the mainstream, I don't see that combustion engines going to survive at all. Uh, so and, and also the performance, as you said, and the efficiency increase. Imagine if you get double the power at half the cost in a battery cell, then nobody needs combustion engines for smaller, medium-sized cars. Especially if you talk with the arrival of electric, not combined, but kind of happen accidentally at the same time, we also move to more autonomous. So the question is, you know, how many people will still want to own a car in 2030, 2035? And how many people will call like the electric autonomous Uber, and it's maybe an Uber share and it picks you up, it gets you where you, where you want to be. And rather than wasting your time driving your car, you sit there and you know where you work or you consume content or you sleep. So I think the problem is that the auto industry was hit with so many challenges at the same time where normally we were handling each of these challenges in a frequency of 10 to 20 years, tick the box, then go to the next one. You know, you know a petrol engine, diesel engine, catalyzers, ABS, ESP, there was always like a technology, I and mean, then you solved it, you moved to the next one, you got it into the basic package. Now, suddenly, unfortunately, you get electrification coming. At the same time, the aut- autonomous hype starts. People start sharing cars um, or don't want to own cars. You know, and then everything gets super connected. So suddenly you have four significant technology disruptions happening at the same time where in cycle times where the computer industry, like mobile phones, are able to handle them. But the car industry was never able to handle so many technology advancements in, in one go at the same time. And that's why I think when we talk about cars today, the predominant concept is still: I drive it myself. I go from A to B. I use it X percent of my day, but I still want to own it. I park it in front of my house, and we, as a family, have X amount of cars. And you still define—not you, but the society—still defines itself uh, to a certain extent that a car is a status symbol, especially upper-middle-class mid- families. You know, people have their little houses, and everybody looks, oh, what car, kind of car he has, and. I know when I was jogging through, through Beverly Hills, you see like every second house, there was a Tesla there. It was just cheek in California and it's still owned. Now in 20 years, people say, I don't really re- need to own that car. Maybe I still own one car and the other three, we use whatever. It needs to be electric. Of course, it was gonna be autonomous. I am gonna share it. And when I enter my car or any car, I want my profile to be there, my play music, my favorite channels, everything. And, and that's kind of probably the problem is not the engine. The engine is just a conversion of one technology from a petrol engine to an electric engine. I think the, the big transformation is what does a car stand for in the future? Is it still a car or is it basically using mobility? Like, you know, I don't know if you guys still had the the CDs, right? Uh, you still know CDs, yeah? Before yeah. the CDs, there were black vinyl. Uh, um, how you kind of music played uh, so I think in 10 years people say what, what CD CD player what the fuck I have Netflix I have Spotify <laughs> I have Apple music you know so my question is we'll move along that paradigm from owning to using in so many factors that I don't know what will be the definition of a car or will it be the definition I want to be mobile and I want to be mobile again around any need of being mobile up horizontal, hyperloop, you know? We're still dreaming about uh, Spocky beam me up. I don't know, 2050 maybe we have ability that mobility is you press a button and you appear in Australia. Um, But I don't know if that's possible.
1: Yeah, I know it's definitely, I mean, I think like all the developments in the automotive industry just seem to be all happening all at once now with electric, with self-driving and all. Like the 2020s will probably be the decade where I already see everything kind of ramped up through um it is interesting though what you said i mean I, I for one wonder i mean my dad was uh pondering buying a 993 porsche 911 uh recently enough and i was saying like you know will like classic cars like that say you know like really special cars you know jaggy e types even a 458 speciality i mean when they get to that stage where like everyone's going around and they're driverless pods and such i wonder will these cars be like incredibly incredibly valued and sought after why like the ultra elite, you know, as you say, to drive around the Nürburgring, just, you know, just to go for their burn or just to admire, to look at, you know, that's, I do wonder that, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think, and again, I think we go to two or three phases because you guys still all have your driving license, right? Yeah. Yes. You still did a proper driving license and a proper car with a steering wheel, with a gear knob, or at least an automatic, and you still manage traffic by yourself. Now in, in 20, 30 years, the next generation might not even have a proper driving license for this kind of things anymore. So mm-hmm. then you might have this Porsche 911, but you maybe are the last generation how to handle this. It's, it's like mm-hmm. when you see Luke Skywalker and he finds like one of these ancient starfighters, He needs to get in and everything is still outdated and it makes funny noises, but it still flies, right? It's like mm-hmm. you go into an old um, airplane still with her, you know propeller in front. not many people can fly that anymore um so that's kind of um the the funny thing that things are are moving so fast but we don't even know um what's happening in 20 years i agree probably the the 458 will be a collector's piece but the question is who's going to be able to drive it your dad and maybe you and at some point it's going to end up somewhere as a display in a barn or in in a collector's yeah. museum yeah, and at some point people might not want to have it anymore and you know because people can't really repair it anymore <laughs> so but i think it's, it's going to be interesting to to watch and to predict uh, uh what's going to happen i think we had that uh change 120 years ago we you still know these ancient pictures new york with the horse carriages and then people said oh you know we're never going to have the same amount of cars because we don't have enough chauffeurs. And when you look at the same picture 20 years later and all the horse-course carriages are gone and you have all the cars there. So I don't know. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch. As I said, nobody can predict the future, except it's going to be very different to what we know. And it's a question of what, how far you look. Is it in five years? Probably not. In 10 years, probably, we're going to see a lot of changes already. In 20 years, for sure, it's going to be a paramount change, especially if all the aero taxis mm. get licensed and the aero taxi becomes a new, not completely normal, but doesn't become a, isn't as exotic as we still perceive it today. Mm. And then you're going to have Hyperloop, which is also an interesting way, right? If a Hyperloop will work, you can travel from London to Manchester in 25, 30 minutes, no traffic jam. So why should you have a car and you arrive in Manchester or you travel New Jersey to Boston, uh, New York to Boston in 30, 40 minutes, you don't need an airplane anymore. And when you arrive, Mera, you know, Uber has an EV pot waiting for you, which just comes 20 seconds before you arrive, because your Google profits <laughs> tells me the, the Uber taxi you're arriving in 20 seconds, it's standing there and say, hey, Ben, waiting for you Ready to take you wherever you want to be.
1: That's <laughs> true, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think as well, I mean, it's fascinating to see how these companies have evolved now with Uber going from just the ride share you know, app that it was at the start, and now they're developing their own actual hardware. They're I know, still very early stages, and you see with companies like, um, I don't know if you know much about Canoe. Uh, yeah, you know, of course,
0: I know Can- yeah. Canoe very well.
1: Yeah, they're, um, I've talked to them and done some work with them in the past, like, and uh, yeah, I mean, that is the future, I think, definitely, in cities, for sure, like, yeah. Uh,
0: and, 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 and I mean, also, uh, I mean, who invested into Rivian, right? It's Amazon.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Rivian is just one piece of a much bigger puzzle Amazon wants to put together to become as dominant in the mobility game as they are already today in e-commerce. I mean, they have Souks, they have Rivian, they're building their own delivery trucks, they're building their own drones or drone delivery systems. You can imagine, and I mean, look at the market capitalization of Amazon. There's only one company which is bigger than them, that's Apple. Uh, So you can bet if they get into the mobility game, they think about a much much bigger game uh, when just producing cars or something autonomous driving around. You know how many clients they have on Amazon Prime tomorrow. They can kill somebody like Uber easily. And just adding, you know, the, the pickup uh, function. I mean, they're already dominating things like food in some areas. So I think you're going to see much different players in the mobility space than as we see them today. And probably there is not going to be mainly the car manufacturers because they think like manufacturers, they still measure their success and number of units produced and sold. While the future metrics is the miles you sell and at what price can you sell a mile to a user and are you going to make money on that? It's like the Netflix, you know, how many accounts you have and how much movies do they watch? It's not how many movies have they produced. Uh, That's irrelevant. It's how much users do we have how many subscribers and what is an average subscriber to which kind of services is subscribing to it's like an apple you know you have an apple account you have a storage account you have a music account you have this you have that and then it's basically revenue per user per month that's a very Mm -hmm. different metrics number one you have today how many units is Ford producing globally in its factories
1: yeah the subscription model actually is quite interesting because there's a number of brands i believe there's a chinese firm who are planning exclusively do Link & Co. Yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah. And uh, even Volvo, who are, of course, owned by Geely, they uh, yeah. have plans in future to just offer the subscription model.
0: Uh, yeah. well, well, I think that when you look at some companies and they call it subscription, you need to go a little bit deeper because subscription is very much a buzzword. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sometimes used, and when you look deeper, it's still kind of a leasing model. A real yeah. subscription is really like have it today, drop it tomorrow, take something else day after and be super flexible. Uh, and you just pay a fee and you go uh, pay per use. So we have in Europe also models like six chair, you had drive uh, drive now, car to go. Um, so very different, obvious, right? Um, um, you know, pay per use basis. Um, but the consumers have not broadly adapted it yet. So I think it's still in a nascent stage, but we're going to see much more on that. Um, in the the years to come for sure again you're talking to generation netflix you're talking to generation itunes you know people are used to this kind of services so why not apply it also on on the mobility space
1: definitely i think it'll be much more easier to integrate with uh what's generation x or you know yeah absolutely
2: yeah yeah i think basically also have a subscription service that that they've been talking about sorry come again I think Fisker has also talked about a subscription service.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. I think many talk about it. I yeah. think you first, I mean, many need to see who can really manage it because financially it's not that easy. You, as a car company, you need to also somehow have these assets somewhere financed by someone. You know, it's not that, you know, you don't have an endless balance sheet to keep hundreds of thousands of cars on your balance sheet. Somebody needs to finance them and operate them. So that's why, talking of subscription is one thing, but really making it happen is a second thing. Uh, I think Faraday yeah. Future talked about it. There are many brands talking about it. Uh, I analyzed the subscription model very deeply when we did some in, um, due diligences before we founded Piniferina because initially we were looking at buying into an EV company. And you see that a lot of these companies underestimate the financial constraints the model has on their working capital.
3: Yeah, I know uh, BMW in Nashville, Tennessee had some sort of a subscription program where you essentially pay, and it was expensive too, I think it was 900 a month, and yeah. you you just call in say, I want a car, and then they deliver it to you, you drive it wherever, you leave it there, someone's going to pick it up, and then whenever you want another one, you call.
0: Yeah, but that's still for me more of a rental, right? Hmm. It's yeah, okay. not yet, subscription is more continuous like Sixth, I don't know, you know Sixth as well, right? So it's That's a yeah. modern mobility uh, company here, strong in Europe, but they also in the US. They have a, we call it Sixth card. And it's a card, you pay like 1500 Euro a month, for example, or thousands. And then wherever you go you, to any Sixth station, you pick up a car, you drive it as long as you want, you drop it back. And then you fly from A to B to C to D and always just swipe your card and you have endless mobility like an endless usage of mobility, wherever you are with that card. So that gives you total freedom. The downside is you don't own any car, you know? For me, for going to the airport, sometimes you leave a lot of stuff in your car. It's also your storage. And then you come back, and I lived that life for six months having no car. And it really I was annoying. You come back from a flight and you want to go to the gym, but your gym bag is at home. So you can't leave it in the car. So it has upsides and downsides, not owning a car at all. Of course, you don't have to pay for parking space. You don't have to pay for insurance. Uh, So it depends also on the flexibility of the user, how flexible you are to accept that you don't own a car anymore, but you always have a clean washed car, fully fueled up and you just use it as, as you wish. And I think it's, as you said, it's a consumer change happening probably over generations it doesn't happen instantly
1: perfect um i've just uh, noticed i mean you're probably a very busy man and i thank you you know coming on quite late as well but uh we've been on for an hour now and uh but i you know i, I really appreciate you coming on of course for the call uh, we all do and uh, it's great to have you on your officially perfect. our first guest so <laughs> yeah, I really
0: appreciate it so it's a it. premiere. Yeah. No, no sure, thanks for, for inviting me and uh, i